This is super cool because you were making $30,000 a year and then you figured out how to make $40,000 in a month. Exactly. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Andrew Giancola, what's up, buddy? How are you? How's it going? I'm so excited to be here. Man, this is going to be a fun one because uh, you are a seasoned podcaster yourself. You are the esteemed host of the Personal Finance Podcast, man. I was just honored to be a guest on your show. So now this is our second time speaking on uh, Wi-Fi and on microphones. So this is going to be a good one, man. I'm really excited to have you. You had a killer episode on our podcast. I think this one is going to be fun as well. So I'm really pumped to be here. Sweet, man. Yeah. And so with your show, you talk a lot about, obviously, as the name applies, personal finance. So we're going over a lot of budgeting strategies, how to increase income, decrease expenses. And so as we begin, I really want to start on this point because you've got a really unique story. And right now you're currently buying businesses, looking for small businesses. And I love that niche. And that's what I'm about to get into. So I want to hit on this specific point to begin with, which is in the personal finance community, especially like the financial independence retire early, there's essentially two schools of thought. School one is let me reduce my expenses as close to zero as possible. School of thought two is I want to have fun. I want to go to a nice dinner. I want to be able to take my family to Disneyland. I want to do the things. How much does my dream life cost? And let me increase my income to be able to support that while still being financially savvy here. And so you've done a couple of things to increase your income from living paycheck to paycheck to starting up a couple of unique businesses to get that revenue coming in. Tell me about this, man, because this is so so interesting to me. So I have literally started all kinds of businesses, which you'll see right here as we talk through this. And one of the biggest things that happened to me early on is, as you alluded to, I was living paycheck to paycheck because at my day job, I was only making $30,000 per year. Now, this was over a decade ago, but that was my entry level job into the corporate world was making $30,000 a year in corporate finance. And so eventually I started to work towards trying to get raises and things at my job and started to learn systems on how to do that. But during this time frame, I realized very quickly I had an income problem and like you said, you and I agree on this completely, where I think you need to focus on increasing your income if you are struggling with your finances. Cutting back expenses, you can only cut back so much, but increasing your income is going to be the huge catapult to be able to get to that next level with your finances, have that dream life like you're talking about, and figure out what that costs. That's what you need to go for. So the first thing I did was, hey, I want to start some sort of side hustle in order to increase my income. And so we landed on this business where we started a Christmas tree stand, we being me and my wife. And we started this side of the road Christmas tree stand, one of the ones that you drive by and you can see those fresh cut Christmas trees. And we started this business because my wife has an aunt who all she does is one month out of the year, she works a Christmas tree stand in North Carolina and she has two locations and she makes about $100,000 per year doing so. So she has just that Christmas tree stand. So she was able to show us how this business works. So we set up a location and the first thing we did is we went out and said, hey, we got to get some trees first. So we used her connection to find trees and find inventory. So we spent about $7,000 initially on buying those initial Christmas trees. 
Then we had to put together a big old tent to put these Christmas trees under. So we had to rent out a tent. It was about $9,000 to start that up. So all in all, we spent about $20,000 early to be able to put this stuff up. Now we actually, since I had no money at the time, we had to put all of these things on credit and hope that we sold all these trees so that I could pay this back when we started this stance. So we ended up starting it, opening it up. There's a lot of little things that we did in between. And we realized, hey, we got to increase revenue here. So we would buy these trees for about $25 and we could sell them for $75. And then the larger ones we would buy for $50 and we could sell them for $200 to $300. And so we had this thing where, hey, I want to increase the customer service on our side so that we can increase revenue. So one thing we did is we would take each and every single tree and we would stand them up so that you could actually see them displayed and see where the holes are inside of the tree and all those different pieces. And so we put these metal poles in and we'd have like enchanted forest basically is what we tried to make it look like where you're just walking through all of these trees instead of it just being laid down on the side of the, the tent where you can't even see how many holes are inside of that tree and then another thing we did is we started to figure out hey you can actually make wreaths when you cut some of these trees and trim them up to make them look nice you can make wreaths out of those trimmings so we would make custom fresh wreaths for people and we would sell those for $50 that's just another revenue piece that we could add on top of that when we went through this process then we would sell like hibiscus and all these different other Christmas items inside of this tent. So all in all, we figured out a system where we could have a better customer service and all these other side of the road Christmas tree stands because they've been doing it for 30 years and they could care less about the customer. And then B, we found ways to increase revenue so that we could actually maximize the potential of this Christmas tree stand. It became a seasonal thing where it took a ton of our time, but at the same time, it became very profitable over time when we did this. And then the huge key to all of this is making sure you find the right location in our first year, we didn't have the best location. So making sure you find that really busy road is another big piece to this. And you just figure it out year over year, profits keep rising. And uh, it's something that we don't do now because of how much time it takes during Christmas time. We have young kids now and we have other businesses, but it was such a fun business to start off with and really taught me all my lessons about some of these other businesses. So what was the profit year one versus like year two, year three, and then when you stopped? So year one was about $10,000, figuring it all out. And a lot of that was because we had to use credit lines and things like that. If you pay in cash, you get a lot of this stuff cheaper. And then every year after that, we would increase it to about 20, 30. And this is all in a month. And for us at that time, it was really it was really great. And then a, a couple of years later, we stopped it just because we became so busy. But I think the last year was around 40,000, somewhere around there. And the cool thing about this is I've thought about it in the past where we could start one up right now and we have all the systems in place that just have employees there. So that's one thing I'm actually weighing out is do we want to start doing this by next year because we'll be able to have these systems in place and we can just get some employees in place as well. At the time, I didn't have any money to pay anybody. But now I think if we had employees and structure there, I think we could really do some cool stuff. And this is super cool because you were making $30,000 a year and then you figured out how to make $40,000 in a month. Exactly. And so it increased our income for the entire year to actually a something where I'm not living paycheck to paycheck anymore. And in addition, I did other things like selling on Amazon. I would do retail arbitrage. So I was just hustling all over the place, trying to make extra income and increasing my income. But the main focus and the way I increased it the fastest was a having that side hustle in that business, but b also making sure I'm focusing on increasing my income at my day job where I spend the most of my time. And so we created like very specific systems that I teach now on how to do that. And that's one of the biggest things that you can definitely do if you're in the corporate world over time. And Brian, you know that for sure, because you made so much money in the corporate world. You got to focus your time on that and then start to take your talents outside of that in order to increase your income and use that income for different things that are assets that produce cash flow, things like that. Yeah. And I want to hit a little bit more about this business, but first let's uh, put a stake in right there because that's pretty interesting to me. So my take on the corporate thing was uh, efficiency. So that's what we teach is how do we get our same output in less input? 
So for me, by the time I was leaving, like the six months prior to me leaving the corporate job, I was working maybe 20 to 30 hours a week and still was the top performer on my team just because I had systems in place. I had hired a uh, virtual assistant. I should probably make a podcast on this. I literally hired a virtual assistant before they became sexy here. And they were doing all my like lead gen for me. So for me and anybody listening that's in corporate, like the CRMs are always so clunky and you have to click and click to get the contact information. So I just had mine make me an Excel sheet with all the decision makers. They scrubbed all the data. They got it through all the different sources. So I was like, okay, cool. Company, founder, cell phone, email address right there. So I was able to go highlight all the email addresses. And once a week, I'll send out a prospecting email and fill my calendar. So I was able to have these high level meetings with a fraction of the work. So how do you normally recommend Because you said you have a system established for helping people increase their income within their corporate jobs. So what did you do? What do you teach on this? So that is one of the, the best things that I think that I thought of after I left the corporate world is getting something like a virtual assistant there. And I think it's so cool that you did that because I think it's significantly going to help your production, A. And if you work in a meritocracy, like you worked in sales, so you know, your income increased based on how much you sold. That is worth every single penny to have somebody there increasing your time. And for me, we worked at a true meritocracy as well, meaning that you get a larger bonus at the end of the year based on performance, based on certain things that you did, especially in the financial world. We they focus more on how much money can you save us? And if you saved us X amount of dollars based on specific projects, we would get these bonuses. So for me, I had to bull my way through this initially. And I hated my life because I had to do that. I was working 80 hours a week. And so coming up with these systems to streamline that process is really important. Now, one big thing that we teach is a lot of people will try to go ask for raises and they'll go into their boss's office after they get fed up with how much they're making. And they'll just walk into that office and say, hey, I want a raise, which is the absolute wrong Worst. way to do this. And mm -hmm. so we put in a six-month system, essentially, where you go talk to your boss six months before your actual yearly review. And what you're going to do is talk through, hey, what are the things I need to hit so that I can increase my income, make sure I get my bonus and get all these pieces together? Then you can create efficient systems like you're talking about, having a VA take care of some of this stuff. So you're just nailing this. And then in addition, taking your time to work on the most high income producing activities that you can at that job. And if you do those two things, it's going to absolutely change your life. Then you check in when you're with your boss the next month and then the next month after that and make sure that you are both on the same page so that when the time comes for you to be able to go to that yearly review, there's no surprises. Everybody knows what's coming. You deserve that raise. You went through the entire process and you have it available to you. So there's multiple little steps in between there that we teach, but that's the, the main bird's eye view of how this goes. Yeah, and that's absolutely genius. That's exactly what I did. And that's exactly what I recommend people do. I love that. The one thing, the one caveat I would add is make sure to get everything in writing because exactly. they will screw you. So make sure to get everything in an email. So what I would do to make it easier on my boss is I would say, okay, cool, let's meet. I want this position. Because in the beginning, people forget, like I hear, like I teach people how to replace corporate with cash flow now, but there was a period of my time of my life where I thought, and I wanted to climb up the corporate ladder and become the VP and the SVP and make it up to the C-suite. And so I was like, okay, what do I need to hit what metrics do I need to hit to be able to get this promotion? What extra assignments do I need to do? They're like, okay, well, you need to have this mentorship. You need to do this side stuff. You need to be like a champion. You need to be a mentor. You need to do new rep rides and all this different stuff. And you're like, here's the numbers that we'd expect. You need to be diamond level top 5%. And so what I would do is I say, okay, cool. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go write up an email recap of everything that you just told me. All I need for you to reply back is approved. And then that way we'll know. So what I would do is I would go type up the recap because your manager is not going to take the time to do this. And then I would send it to them and then they would reply approved. I'm like, okay, cool. Now it's black and white. 
That's exactly right. And that's exactly what we talk about, too, is you have to have this in an email right after. Otherwise, there's this is just word of hearsay. So you got to make sure that you have that. It's hearsay. So you have to make sure that you have that right after those meetings in order to say, hey, here's the summary of what we just talked about. It takes you five minutes to summarize it. So it's definitely worth that time for sure. Yeah. And another thing to go back to the business and the increasing income side, you came to the realization that there was only a certain percentage by which you can increase your income within your W-2. So what I really like that you did, and whenever somebody shares like an interesting story, whether it's buying a business, starting up a side hustle, an Etsy store, a podcast, or making a Christmas tree business, right? I'm always looking for repeatable steps that people could take away from this. And one of the couple of takeaways that I wrote down is that you didn't try to reinvent the wheel. You didn't say, oh, I know nothing about this. I'm going to go figure out how to sell Christmas trees. No, you had somebody that you knew that was already validating the business idea. You said, this person that I know personally is doing the thing and they're making good money and they only do one month out of the year. So I'm going to now go leverage their experience, who not how, to show me how to do it so that we can do it. And then there's proof of concept because a lot of people, what they're doing with their side hustles, they're trying to reinvent the wheel and do this new sexy newfangled thing but that's the worst time to innovate is with your side hustle i think but what, what do you think about this i completely agree and you're going to see this as a theme throughout my entire story where i am looking for people who already know what the heck they're doing with, within these businesses and i want to make sure that i can just follow their systems and then improve on those systems because we all have better ideas within specific systems and how can you improve on those to increase that revenue is my biggest focus when i look for businesses and this is why i don't start many businesses anymore instead i like to buy them because that is the the way where i they already have a system in place they already have proof of concept with, that we, we can verify with the balance sheet and the pnl and then from there, we can take this and what can we add to these businesses in order to grow them over time? Yeah, I love this. And what we're talking about is applicable in every single business. Just all the way back to this Christmas tree story, there's only two levers that you can really pull, three levers that you pulled that actually impacted the profitability of the business. So one is you move to a new location to increase the customers, increase the lead flow. Then tip number two is you took the same customer and you made it more valuable to you. So you increased the LTV of the customer, the lifetime value. You said, this customer is buying this tree for this price. Now we can also offer reefs and all these custom like ancillary services and items that will be on top that will increase the price and the profit per customer. So now you made a customer more valuable to you. So you're getting more customers, the customers are more valuable, and then you went and reduced expenses by figuring out, okay, if I pay in cash that I can get these products and these trees for cheaper. And that's the same thing that you apply in literally every single other business afterwards. Is that spot on? Is there anything you would add? It's spot on. And that's really where you want to focus is it's got to make operational sense. It's got to make customer sense. And then in addition, you got to make sure that you have all the right systems in place, the SOPs in place so that you can remove yourself from that business and then have other people run it for you. Those are the biggest things that you want to be able to do. And that's what I learned with that first business was how to do this. Yeah, I love that, man. So walk us through the transition period here, because now as I'm hearing a guy that's making $30,000 a year, which kudos to you for having this kind of dog mentality where you're like, okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Because normally, the people at that level, they're like, they're so bogged down and just staying afloat and surviving that they can't even think about this stuff. So there's a gap here between that guy and the guy that we're talking to today. So what happens next? 
So the next thing I did was, since I was working directly under the CEO and COO, making special projects for them, they took me under their wing when we went through this process. This was a very large healthcare company. And so what we ended up doing was they wanted to start investing in real estate, but they did not want to do the work side of that to be able to start investing in real estate. So I became a sweat equity partner with them in order to start investing in real estate deals. And what we would do is we would do a bunch of different transactions, but for the most part, we wanted to focus on buying single family and small multifamily houses. But we also had other transactions where we were buying and selling and flipping things like that. And so over time, I was doing all of this by myself. I was the only person in the company working on this business. Uh, and we started to do right around 100 transactions overall when we went through this entire process. And the long story short is that we ended up signing, selling each of those individual properties off and liquidating that business. And it was something that I realized very quickly, hey, I, they've got the majority percentage of this company. I could do this on my own in the future, but maybe do this as a slow process where I want to buy one to two properties per month and then put the systems in place where I don't have to be working in this business. Because anybody who has rental properties knows as you start to increase the amount of properties that you have, it is not fun to be working in that business, especially managing tenants and managing those properties. No. So this is one thing where, this is why part of the reason why we liquidated was because I wanted to meet make sure that I could just own my own properties and not have to work inside the business. These specific individuals were against having property managers in place. So I was stuck managing all these properties and I did not have the majority of the equity in, the, in that business. So we decided to liquidate this business. But this taught me so much about investing in rental properties. It was basically like an entire college education just going through this process because we could make these transactions. I could see exactly how this works. Every They relied on me completely 100% throughout this entire process. And I had some very stringent criteria before we bought these properties. So it really worked out for me to say, hey, maybe I could loosen up this criteria a little bit so that we can actually find more properties going forward. So now I'm a person who likes to buy one property a year or so. And we just started rebuying as of last year. So we're looking to one, two, three properties a year if we can is our goal now. Yeah, sure. So because you're focused on buying the businesses, then what's even the point of the properties just for tax benefits or... Exactly. So I like to have a diverse, I like to have a diversified portfolio, essentially. So just buying the properties, it's something I really know how to do well now because I've done so many of them. And so because of that, it's just something that comes natural to me. So when I see a property that has a really good deal, I mean, it has to be a really good deal for me to buy it now because it's not worth the headache. But if I see one that's a really good deal, then I like to diversify into them and then have that tax benefit, essentially. Yeah. Have you heard about that? The tax benefit with the short term rentals where you could take the bonus depreciation? Yes. So I have friends who do a ton of short-term rentals and they love this piece of it. And so we just had, her name is Lauren. Lauren is the host of the Adulting is Easy podcast, Lauren Keen. Oh, I love her. Went, yeah, I was on her podcast. Yeah. Yeah, she, she's amazing. And so we were just talking about this the other day at FinCon and we were going through that. She was explaining some of the pieces to me because the short-term rentals are something I did look at for a long time. And I went through like Avery Carl's book and like all some of those different things. And so it's still something I'm interested in. I just haven't found the right deal yet in the right specific location that I want to go to. Yeah, it's a super interesting loophole. I've been learning about that myself. And I've got a friend that actually runs a cost segregation company. So he makes like gobs and gobs of income through his cost seg company. And so what he'll do is he'll go buy short-term rentals just to be able to cost seg them and use the bonus depreciation. So he can get way more bonus depreciation front loaded on his short term rental than he can on a traditional rental property. Because then you're just taking normal depreciation, which is still awesome. Like basically, if you're paying taxes on the income generated through real estate, you need to hire a new CPA. But he's able to liquidate his earned taxes, his earned income on top of the short term income. So that's something that I'm looking into this next year. That's very interesting to me. But th that yeah, so that's very interesting. So a, a point that I want to take out from that, another one that I think was really interesting is that, again, like success leaves clues. And once again, people right now are in a 
a lot of scarcity mindset. I talk to a lot of people. I'm DMing a lot of people that follow me. And a lot of them are scared to invest. They're waiting for these markets to go down. And they keep trying to do something that's brand new. But once again, another example of you going to people that have done it before. And just in this case, it happened to be your CEO. But just getting close with mentors, getting close with people that have done the thing, and then partnering up with them for those first couple of deals to really get your feet underneath you. I think that's a massive takeaway from what you just said. It's a huge deal because you have to have somebody who understands what's going on. And that's going to, the mentors are the biggest thing for this. And a lot of people try to downgrade mentors now. I've, I've noticed that people have been talking about that, but they really do make a massive difference, especially guiding you at the beginning. The hardest part with these businesses and running these businesses are the first year or so. And so when you have it for that first year, it's really stressful. You're trying to figure out what's going on. It's just like having a new job. And so getting those systems in place and getting comfortable with those systems and seeing that they're working is the biggest thing. So if somebody can help you do that, it is going to accelerate your path especially when it comes to business. Yeah, I don't really get the take of the anti-mentor. I don't think it's from anybody. I haven't seen it from anybody that I know, like, or respect. Because if you look back to history, like I study a lot of history now, and even going back to like ancient Roman times and with all the greats, with like the Julius Caesars, Marcus Aurelius, like those guys were from birth, mentored and guided and coached the Rockefellers of the world that, the Carnegies, they all had... The Rockefeller had his father that was able to teach him everything. Carnegie had this guy that worked for the rail systems, which is like who literally guided him throughout his entire adolescent career. So it's just like in history, all the way back to ancient times, there's been a mentorship and what is it? An apprenticeship program. Apprenticeship. And we've gone away from the apprenticeship model, which is so odd to me because that is what has obviously worked throughout all of history And now we just figured out that we can do it on our own with an online course. Like, why do you think this is? I think it's a really interesting take because I, I do the same thing. I look back at history and I say, what did everybody do? Because I think we can learn from other people's mistakes. It don't have to be your own mistakes, but you can learn from other people's mistakes. And that's one of the most powerful things that you can do. And I've noticed a lot of people fail in business because they have no idea what they're doing. And that's the reason why they fail is they have nobody helping them along that way. You can look at probably my biggest hero overall is Warren Buffett because I'm in the finance world. Mm-hmm. I love that I've read everything about him. And so he had a mentor called Benjamin Graham. And every single successful person, you can go down the line, just like you're saying, has that mentor, they have those people in place. So I really don't understand that take, just like you're saying, of not having those mentors. I've seen it more and more over time, and I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if it's somebody out there just thinking maybe it's soft to go out there and have those mentors, but I think it is the number one most powerful thing that you can have in place throughout any business. And it doesn't have to be one individual person. I think a lot of people try to find that one person they can like latch onto and learn from, but it really needs to be a bunch of different advisors that you have around you based on what businesses you're looking at, or if you're investing in real estate, you have a bunch of different real estate investors that you talk to, maybe it's a meetup, something like that. But you got to have a multitude of people in your life that you can get counsel from. Wise people go out and they seek out counsel from other people. That is exactly what they do. They learn from other people. And so I think that is one of the best things that you can do, one of the most powerful things you can do in your life. Yeah. I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing, Aristotle. Exactly. So it's just the people that I think have egos are the ones that are just in the wrong rooms. And they're the, because it's very difficult to be cocky when you're in the correct rooms. Because at each level of business, you enter a new room where you're at the bottom of the totem pole. So it's, yeah, I, I love celebrating your achievements and everything and loving the journey and loving the climb, but it's just cool. So we're building a million dollar a year business right now. That's awesome. And I acknowledge that. And that's so flipping cool. But if I were hanging out with college friends talking about how I'm build, building a million dollar a year business, 
like it's impossible as a human being to not have arrogance from that position. And this isn't me being better than you or you better being better than me. That is just human nature. Whereas if you're in a room where people are talking about making a million dollars a month, then you realize and recognize, oh, okay, there's levels to this. And that's where humility is. So you mentioned um, an example there that is beautifully said, uh, Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham, because Benjamin Graham has a wonderful quote on mentorship. And it's when Warren went to offer to work for him for free. And he goes, what you ask of me is too expensive. Yep. Because for him to sit and have to think about what value can Warren bring to him, right? Because he has no idea what his skill sets are, what he's good at, what problem he's solving. So now that becomes homework for the mentor, Benjamin Graham, to help young Warren Buffett. And so I love that you said that because that, that's a perfect segue into how to approach a mentor. Because how a lot of people are doing it is say, hey, can I pick your brain? Can I ask you for help on this? And that's the terrible way to go about it. So how do you go about approaching mentors or how do you teach people on this? So one of the best things that I've ever done, every mentor I've ever had has happened organically. And the way that it's happened organically is you provide value in their life. You have to show them value and create value. Everything in life is based on you creating value for someone else. So a lot of times what you have to do is if there's someone you're interested in being coming a mentor for, you have to create value for them. You have to make their life so much easier before they'll even want to mentor you. Otherwise, you're just taking and not giving anything at all. So that's one of the, the first things that you really need to do. Now, it depends on the specific industry, how you can help them. For example, say, for example, you want to start investing in real estate. You want to buy X amount of properties by a certain date. The way to find a mentor is to say, hey, I have all these properties. I can help you find properties. I'll drive for dollars so that you can find more deals because that's all real estate investors want is more good deals. And then if you can find those deals for them, A, it gives you practice in evaluating properties, but B, it gives them the deal where they can become partners. And maybe you can come partners in some of these deals because you're finding these properties. After you find them a couple of good deals, you can come up with some really good structures there in order to start a business with this individual. And getting into business with some of your mentors is one of the best things you could do because you're working with them day to day. It's not something where you're joining a mastermind once a month. You're literally working with them inside of these businesses and it can really accelerate your path to success because you're with them every single day. You see what they do. A lot of times people will get in with mentors and the mentors just talk about what they're doing day to day, but they don't get to actually see it. And sometimes what they're doing day to day is different than what they're talking about when they have conversations with you. Yeah. And that's a common denominator across high performers as well. Is you get, if you go ask someone that's especially like a top 1% of something and you ask them why they're great at it, they can't articulate it. Most of them can't. So exactly. even like the, with a sales rep, like you go see like the best sales rep. And even in my position, like when I got up there too, people would ask, how do you do it? And it's difficult for me to articulate because it's just hours and hundreds and thousands of hours of coaching of tonality, of question sequences, of controlled pauses and controlled silence and different ways that you phrase questions and follow up and all these nuances. Like everything is a game of nuance. And so it's the feedback loop is so much faster when you're ever you're watching somebody do something as opposed to listening to it. That's why I'm I'm a huge fan of the entire model. But let's talk a little bit about your transition from real estate to business because a lot of people stick with real estate. I love real estate, have so much, so many real estate investors. Everybody that's the who's who of real estate investing has either been on the show or is going to be on the show. And so we talk about it a lot. I love businesses and I love business. And that's just my jam now. And because when you're buying a business, you're literally buying cash flow, which is what you're not finding in real estate right now, unless you're like really buying. So what made you interested in starting to buy businesses and walk us through the, like the mindset transition from that employee to full-time entrepreneur? 
So the there's a book called Buy Then Build. And if Walker. you've never read Buy Then Build, it's by Walker Dybul. I don't know if you had him on yet, but if you haven't, uh, I'll get you guys together because he is an amazing guest. But he has in that book, I read through that book because I read a book about a book every single week. And so sometimes I'm trying to just find books about something that I'm interested in. And I read that book a couple of years ago. And when I read that book, all of a sudden, my mind just completely was transformed based on what is possible out there. And what that book talks about is the benefits of buying a businesses buying a business instead of starting a business. And so that kind of planted the seed. Now there's a lot more people coming up. You could think of someone like Cody Sanchez, for example, who's coming up and talking about this topic a lot. And so this is what started it for me as well, was thinking through, hey, you can really buy cash flow and you can buy these businesses sometimes on seller financing terms. And most of these small businesses are willing to allow seller financing terms because it helps them, A, with a retirement plan, for example, but B, also gives them the opportunity to be able to still stay involved in that business, their baby that they actually started. So these two things alone make it really beneficial in order to go out and buy businesses. And you can buy them at much lower multiples than maybe some of these other competitive industries like real estate, for example. So one big thing for me is that you can go out, buy a business that already has existing cash flow. It has existing customers in place. So you don't have to try to reinvent the wheel. There's already somebody there that can show you exactly what is going on when you buy these businesses. And so when you go out there, you can search for businesses a bunch of different ways which we can talk about. But when you go out and search for businesses, you want to find the ones that A, obviously are extremely profitable, but B, have the correct systems in place. And when they have these minor systems in place, then you can tweak them and really crank up that profitability. Those are the gold mines to find. So it takes us a long time to find businesses. But when we do, we really try to get them under contract as fast as we can with really favorable terms. And you can find them with very favorable terms now. And the big thing to note is if you look at the statistics that are coming up, the baby boomer generation is massive and they are retiring at record rates. And there is going to be so many of these businesses that they do not sell. They're just going to dissolve away because they don't even know that they could sell these businesses. So if you can be the person there who says, hey, I can actually give you cash for this business instead of you just dissolving this business. There is so much opportunity out there. And most people are not going to take advantage of this opportunity, A, because they don't have the wherewithal to put these systems into place. B, they don't know how to buy things creatively. And that's one of the keys to this. And C, they just have no idea that you can even buy a business. And so this is something where everybody thinks about investing in real estate or buying stocks or index funds or whatever else. Nobody thinks about buying businesses. And this is where I think there's a massive opportunity and it's higher cash flow. I completely agree. And especially going into the macro trends. So I see a lot of different macro trends, especially doing this podcast. And one of them is the business buying sector. Another one is, I believe the mastermind and the community model is going to beat the the online course model over the next five to 10 years. I think that there's a fatigue there and we're going to start. I just did an episode on this on Monday and you're going to start to see a fatigue of online courses over the next three to five years. And people are going to want to go back to more of that personalized, individualized handholding where it is more of that apprenticeship model. Whereas here's the information. Talk to me on Tuesday, and we're going to go through this together. That's what people are more so craving again, I think. And so I'm all in on business buying. So what we're doing right now, and I've talked about it a little bit on the show, is like right now we're getting the process of this first business done. So this is our MBA. It's like a real-life MBA. It's building up Action Academy and growing this business and building the systems and the processes. And right now, it's I'm learning a lot about M&A, I'm learning all these different terms because in the next five years, I want to start buying these businesses up. Now, when I say that in the context that I say it, it's not because I'm waiting for some crash or because I'm waiting for some black swan event to happen. I'm saying it from the context, and I think this is important. I want your opinion on it. Of it's when you hear about these entrepreneurs having seven streams of income, 
It's because they're a serial entrepreneur, not a parallel entrepreneur. So they don't do all this stuff at the same time. And so for Action Academy, like we are, this is all I'm focused on for the next two years. This is it. And then unless, to add a caveat to that, unless you're adding an additional revenue stream on top of the thing that you're doing, like you adding the wreaths to your Christmas tree business, you didn't go to a Christmas tree business and then start a, a bakery and then start like a floral arrangement company. Like you were like, let me add this on top of my current previously established business. So we're getting this established over the next two years. And then afterwards, we're building that business. So I want to let you riff on that. What are your thoughts about sequential order of business buying? I think it's incredibly important. And it's a great thing that you noted this. Like you have said this before. I've heard you say this. Keep the main thing. And yeah. the reason for that is as you're starting to build something up, you want to make sure that you put these. I keep talking about systems, but you, the systems are everything when it comes to business. And a book called Traction taught me that. But when yeah. you go through this, you have to have these systems in place and make sure they are all there. So like we talked about earlier, there it is. Perfect. Then we can have these in place so that you can exit yourself and take yourself out of the business. Then you can move on to the next thing. But this takes a couple of years. It's not something that happens really quickly. And if you move too quickly, at times, you can really mess a lot of things up. So a great example of this, like you are building up your business, is we built up Master Money in the Personal Finance Podcast. But I took three years to make sure that I had all of this in place before we started buying more businesses. And that was the one of the impetuses of making sure that this happened. So we put all those systems in place, make sure I could exit out besides creating the content. And then we can go out and buy more things. And I think it's really important to do that in a sequential order and not at the same time. Because if you're doing it at the same time, you're just going to be spread too thin. And if you don't have those systems in place, there's no way you can do both. Because buying a business, when you take over that business over the course of the first three months to a year is really stressful because you're trying to figure out all these different components to this business. Even though you've looked into it and you understand it, you now have to do the, the small intricacies to be able to take this over. So it's a very stressful process during that time. And if you don't have systems in place for some of the other things that you're doing, there is no way you're going to be able to make it. So walk us through the business buying journey right now. So which ones have you bought? And then walk us through the process of it. Sure. So the entire process is a obviously is starting off the hunt. And when you're looking for businesses, you got to figure out what you want. Now, I have been all over the place with some of the businesses that I'm interested in. And some of them have been things like laundromats, for example. So we've been very close to buying laundromats. Another one that we had under contract was a car wash. So this is a good example of what not to buy. So we bought this. We were under contract days away from closing on this coin operated con uh, car wash. One of the ones that you drive into those bays and you have the wand and you spray it down. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a self service car wash. And so we went to this process and everything looked good on this car wash. It was making about $20,000 per month in profit and it was all coin and cash operated. So you didn't have to have employees there. They had vending machines, which is actually another great business that you can have in place. They had all these different things in place where it was doing really well. It was a staple in the community for about 30 years in this small town. And so we were ecstatic to get this under contract. And we got this business that was making $20,000 per month in profit under contract for $120,000. And we're like, this is almost too good to be true. It was all seller financing. I think we were going to put 40000 down and the rest of it was going to be seller financing that we pay off over time. So literally, we're going to just acquire cash flow. The cash flow is going to pay down the note to that seller who was about 80 years old. So he just wanted to retire and have some cash flow in place. So we found him by just looking at this business and saying, hey, I saw him there one day and I said, hey, I want to see if you're interested in buying this business. Off-market businesses are so much better than on-market business. That's the only way I've been finding businesses of late. And so we started talking. And we had under contract and I realized three days before closing, I did a bunch of different surveys in the area and realized there were three of those like brand new, shiny $20 a month automatic car washes that were opening up within a five mile radius within the next 12 months. And 
This was a thing where I didn't check the competition early enough to make sure that wasn't happening, but I actually went to City Hall to figure out, hey, is there anything opening up? And this is a tip for people who are going out to buy businesses is go to the Chamber of Commerce or City Hall and see if you can figure out, are there any competitors opening up within the next 12 months that have filed licenses, things like that? And I found out there were three of them opening up. And this guy had no idea that they were opening up. So we had a home run deal and he had no idea that they were opening, or at least he said he didn't. And so we went and we actually ended up backing out on that deal because I was not comfortable with the competition. I thought the competition could kill us because this is a self-serve. And with this one, you pay $20 a month and just go through the line. And so what happened, and this is a huge dodge bullet, is I looked at that business about three months ago and it had burned down in about 12 months after we backed out. There's a couple of interesting things that happened there, but that's just an example of what not to do and what not to buy. And so after that, I started searching again. We're looking at more laundromats because laundromats are almost like a real estate deal, but they do cash flow very well and they are recession proof. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for businesses hopefully that can have both of those combinations. But cash flow is obviously the biggest thing that we are looking for. And so we kept looking and looking and then finally landed on what we just, what I was telling you about recently, where we just purchased a pickleball facility. So pickleball is one of the fastest growing sports in the country. And we purchased a, a pickleball facility with six different courts. It's indoors, it's air conditioning. I'm in Tampa, Florida, so it's really hot. And all the courts in our area, I noticed, have over a hundred different people waiting. And so we went out, we found this facility. It was the only one in the area. And we said, hey, we're looking to start our own facility, but if you're interested, I would love to buy this facility if you want to talk. And they said, you know what? This is a lot of work. We're getting burnt out. We've only had this open for a certain amount of time and we would love to start selling. So this is another example of going up to people and just talking to them and finding them off market. And so we had this conversation and we ended up buying this facility. This is actually two weeks ago or two Fridays ago from when we're recording here. So this is something where now we have this facility. I'm in the stressful part again, where we're going through the stressful, trying to figure out all these systems and then put them into place so that we can move on to the next thing. And that, now we have our eyes on some other industries that we want to buy going forward, which I can talk about. But this is the next thing that we purchased. Yeah. So are you able to talk about the revenue of the pickleball court? Because you're going through it right sure. now. Yeah. So walk us through what's the revenue look like. And then also, what are the terms? So right now, the revenue is about $65,000 per month. The expenses come out to around $25,000 a month. And the terms that we Ooh. have are we structured this in an interesting way. So the way that we structured this was the owner wants to still be a part of this business. And I wanted him a part of this business because as you can see, when it comes to my story, I'm looking for partners who already know what the heck they're doing. So he's staying on at 20%. We have 80% of the business, but he's helping us run this. And he's been a huge help, especially in these first couple of weeks, making sure we understand how everything is going. And then he's still going to be involved on some of the day-to-day -day, and he's going to have that in place. But the way that we structured this was with seller financing. So we put 140 down on this business because we wanted to make sure that we could secure the business. And then from there... We have payments for the first year at $15,000 per month. And we structure this just the first year as the guarantee. Then after that, the way that we're going to do this is we are going to split it 50-50 into the profit until he is paid off. So we bought the business for about $700,000 and he is going to get paid off at a 50-50 profit split. So we share with the upside and we share on the downside until he's completely paid off. So that's how we structured it so that the, we are de-risked because one of my biggest things was, hey, pickleball is something that has been growing really fast. What if it's a fad? What if a recession hits and people can't pay to go play? All these different what ifs. Well, we have the personal guarantee for the first year. And then going beyond that, that is something where we structured that 50-50 differential. So we both share in the upside and we both share in the downside until the total amount is paid off. Then it goes back to 80-20. So it's almost like a cousin to the earnout. Exactly. 
And that's why it's so beneficial for us because there are some downsides that are possible. It's not recession-proof like other businesses would be that I'd be interested in, but it is something where so many people are playing specifically in this area and there's so much demand for it that, and he already has all the systems in place and he's figured out some secrets to the business that really are helpful, that it just makes it something where we have somewhat of a moat here as we go through this. Now, our ultimate goal is to actually open a couple more locations in the area. And that's what we're hoping to do at some point in time. And then we can have two to three locations and then have that roll in that way. I think it's a good move. And I like how you mitigated the risk at the PG for the first year, because everyone talks about avoiding the personal guarantee, but sometimes it's just unavoidable. But you can mitigate that through other terms like you did with the 50-50 like profit split. I think that was super interesting because then you're like, okay, you're staying on like you have skin in the game here. So you don't have to worry about the non-competes and stuff because he's there in it with you. And you're actually going through and you're sharing in the upside, you're sharing in the downside of that were to come, I think is a great macro trend. Like the, the market that I see for it, especially is like upscale, which is what I'm assuming that you're doing, because right now there's so many courts that are out there, but it's all like the tech and the entrepreneurs and everyone that loves pickleball. So if you can have a state of the art facility and like almost like a country club style to it, oh my God, I think that would absolutely kill. Exactly. Yeah. And there's so many things that you can add. I can talk about what we want to add to it too, but there's so many things that you can do here because it's what you want to do is make it a draw that people want to come to because you don't want to compete with the public courts. So we want to make it to where, hey, you can have really high level training if you want to. We have a night where really good players, the only way they can come to this specific night is that they get invited. So there's Ooh. a dating app that I saw out there and it was like an invite. I can't remember the name of it at the top of my head, but it was like an invite only dating app. And this dating app hit just hit like a billion dollars. So we're going to test that out, see Raya. if it works with really high level players and just follow some of these intricate systems. We're going to do specific coaching where we have cameras in the facility and the coach can actually get on there, watch you play and then coach you and go over this process. Say, hey, you did this right. You did this wrong. Go through all those different things. So we're adding all of these different elements that, that are going to make it a differentiator for people that are going to want to come there instead of competing with public courts just for open play all day. Yeah, the app is Raya. I may or may not be a member, not confirming or denying. Okay, perfect. There but uh, yeah, no, so they, you go through an entire application process and everything. So it's like for an exclusive... Like it's an exclusive thing, but like I think I love that. So you put 20% down, just did the math. So you basically put 20% down in the business. And then, so how long is the seller carrying the note also? We're carrying it for five years. But right now, since we're partners, I think he's okay with us on the 50-50 split if it draws out a little longer. So that's the conversations that we've had and put in the contract is he's okay if it draws out longer. Uh, but he gets his money. And the reason why we had to do the personal guarantee for him is he's like, I don't know you guys. I don't want you to just buy this and sell it from underneath me two months later. So we put that in place. And I was comfortable enough with it based on the cash flow of the business that I think we could actually sustain that for the year and then be able to move forward with that 50-50 split. So all we really have to do is make sure that we get to that 50-50 split so that we can all share with the upside on that part. Yeah. And when it comes to... So it's funny because you say that because I've got podcast episodes on every single part of this. So Christian Osgood, we just had him on. He was a really good one. He was a really good one where he was talking about like how he goes into seller finance negotiations for his real estate. And how he approaches it is he goes to these sellers and he just goes to network. And so how I do it is I go to people that are in real estate or people that are in whatever business I'm looking to buy because I was looking to buy laundromats. I was looking to buy car washes as well. And so I'll go to the owners. I'll figure out who the owners are. And I'll say, hey, I'm really interested in getting into... So here's how I phrase it. Tell me if there's any way you would change this. Say, hey, I'm really interested in getting into the space. I'd love to ask you about this and this, like three specific things about this business, do coffee, stuff like that. And I'd be like, and then also, if you know of anyone that's interested in selling, I'd love to be introduced. 
And so that way is a very non-risky way of saying, hey, I'm not coming to you to try to just pitch you on seller financing to buy your business out from under you. I'm asking if you know anyone. So it's the same thing with capital raising. So Brandon Turner shared this, and it's what I've done as well in the past. And I think it was beautifully said. It's like when you're asking people to invest with you and to fund your deals, when you're looking for the private money lenders, you just go and you say, hey, I've got this real estate deal. And it's bad if you go say, hey, do you have any money for this? That's going to leave a sour taste in people's mouth. But instead, you're like, yo, I've got this real estate deal. Here's what it looks like. Here's the return I'm looking to do. Do you know anyone that'd be ready or open to invest in this that you connect can, that you can connect me with? And they'll either say yes, they'll say no, or they'll be like, wait a second, no, I like why not? Why aren't you asking me? I can do that. And that's just been like a little hack that I've used that just takes away all of the friction from it in the front end. Is there any other advice or recommendations you would give on approaching these sellers and building these relationships? That's pretty much exactly how we do it. We go up there and say, hey, we're looking to start this business in this area. And a lot of times, if we can meet them, we will go through that and just talk to them. So we go into the business and say, hey, we're looking to start one of these. Do you know anybody who wants to sell or is interested in in selling? (laughs) And sometimes what they'll do is they'll take down your contact information and say, yeah, I'll talk to you. Like for this one, for instance, they took down the contact information and they said, yeah, let me go see if I know anybody. And then they call back the next couple of days and they said, actually, let's have a conversation about us selling ours because this is really stressing me out. It is something where he had a full, he has a full-time company that he runs there. He started this on the side with his sons because his sons had the idea and he wanted to teach them about business. They're 16 and 18. And so he went through this process and all of a sudden this business did really well. And all of a sudden he had something he had to actually pay attention to. And so it was something where we had a seller with a problem. It's the same thing in real estate. You find people with problems and then you solve their problems for you. So for, and you solve their problems for them. So this is something that's going to be really cool over this time frame. And he's a great guy, great partner thus far. And I think it's something where you can already tell we can trust him so far. So it's something that's really, I think it'll be beneficial on all sides. That's awesome, man. So what's next for you? So the next thing is, and this is one big thing that I'm going through as well, is trying to detract from finding another business to get the structure for this, like we talked about earlier. Because one big thing was we're trying to buy a portfolio of businesses is our big goal here. And so we want to buy more and more of those businesses and grow them over time. And so growing this one specifically is going to be a big one. But I think you can also own things like laundromats, for example, and, and have those systems that are already in place. There's not a lot of, a ton of things that you can do to grow the revenue of a laundromat is what it is outside of replacing. Unless you do like wash and fold and pick up. Exactly. Which is a whole different system in and of itself. So those are things that we're looking for maybe now while we're still building up this business. And then the next two to three years, my goal is maybe every two to three years buying the next business and figuring out what we want to do. So that is our entire goal is to have that portfolio of businesses. And if we make it a hold co or if we do something where we raise funding, I think we just want to bootstrap this and go step by step on buying these businesses every two to three years, making sure we are very careful that they are actually cash flowing and making sure we are, you know, very careful in the downsides as well. So all of those are to say buying real estate, buying more businesses are the, the biggest goal for us going forward. Yeah, I love it. And it's the roll-up method. So you're just trying to combine all these different pieces to the puzzle together so that you can go to private equity and you can get a valuation on it. So then all of a sudden now you've got like bank notes and you're loanable because now you've got this big juicy valuation on your business from all these different ones that are rolled up. Love it, man. That's freaking sick. So where can people find out more about you and follow along on your journey? Absolutely. So I am the host of the Personal Finance Podcast. If you got to get your money, most of you probably have your money right. But if you got to get your money, come and check us out on any podcast player there. I also put a newsletter out every single week called the Master Money Newsletter. And we do that. It's at mastermoney.co if you want to find that. And outside of that, any socials, I am at mastermoneyco. Perfect. You guys heard it here first. Go follow Andrew. Go follow him on Instagram as well. And follow along the entire journey, man, because I love it. I'll be watching. I'll be right there with you, man. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome.
Thank you, Brian, for having me. I appreciate it. With that, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Brian and Andrew with the Action Academy Podcast, signing off. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it, so I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.